Welcome to CLC Connects, the podcast that connects College of Lake County experts with you to talk about anything and everything you might want to know. I'm your host, Jesse Prue. This week, I'm chatting with David Asma about the sociology of fear. Dave is an investigator with the Lake County Public Defender's Office. He's also a longtime CLC faculty member teaching sociology, social media, and new media. In this episode, we'll talk about moral panic, fear of the other, and media literacy. So stay tuned. So Dave, why are we so afraid? <laughs> go with and, what, and what are we afraid of? <laughs> we go straight to the big question. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, you know, we're we're afraid of a lot of things that are probably different for us, or that we're afraid for things are afraid of things that seem f- uh, unusual or foreign or the other, and and I think that that does give us concern because we're so used to our everyday lives that something that gets in the way can be perceived as threatening. And I think people are concerned about threats given geopolitical issues and environmental issues. And then they're also concerned about what they see in news programming and in media. And that has an impact on how we start to see the world around us. I mean, we are, um, often suspect of people who don't look like us Mm -hmm. or sound like us or, you know, live near us. Mm -hmm. And so they're easy targets for being concerned of and being suspicious of. And those are all ingredients for fearfulness. Think of the masks that children are wearing or adults are wearing for Halloween. You know, that it's not a a mask of them. It's a, a mask of something else. And so we know that there's some real person under that mask, but that mask implies a bit of um, existential otherness. Um, but I think that, that fear of the other is a big deal when it comes to not just Halloween, but everyday life. Yeah. Because people are suspect of someone from another country, or they're worried about immigration, or they're worried about... Um, people who are alleged to be criminals. I mean, all of these just induce more fear, and then we consume more of that fear, and then we get weird indigestion from that meal of fear, but yet I can't, I'll go back to eating it again the next day. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're, we're fed this diet of, of fear. We don't like it, but I can't look away yeah. from it and give me another helping, please. In, in sociology, uh, Remember, we're very interested in the external factors that uh, impinge on our everyday lives and how we then internalize those and then act based on that. Um, But a lot of sociology is based on the external environments rather than internal psychological stuff. In many ways, we can leave that cool social, uh, the the cool psychological stuff to our uh, brethren in the the uh, psychology field, but uh, sociology is still part of the social sciences, so we can still look at the similar aspects of, of fear and concern and ideas of risk. But a lot of that still comes from the outside, from factors that are external to individuals. And if you think of it, everything is external to individuals. What we see on television, crime rates, um, what we hear in our neighborhoods, um, uh, existential dread, 
things, things of that nature. So we're almost talking about like our collective fears here and not, not so much like I'm afraid of the dark. Or. Right. I mean, and all of this is collective. Otherwise, how else does it get to us? Um, we can be afraid of the dark, but in many ways, what has led us to that fearfulness of dark? Is it from experiencing the dark? I mean, there certainly is, at least from a sociological standpoint, no genetic predisposition for fear of dark. It has to be experienced in some way or someone telling us about that fear at the same time. So growing up with siblings and people are like, I'm not going to the room, will you come with me? You know, does that s help to stimulate this, this idea of fearfulness? Yeah. You know, people who grow up with um, trauma around them react differently. Um, people who consume a lot of crime-related media mm -hmm. think about the outside world differently. Um, not everyone has the same level of fearfulness because there's so many different factors that are surrounding us. What is it that we're consuming regularly that is leading us to be afraid of, of anything, whether it's other people or crime that is maybe not necessarily as bad as, as we think it is? Um, there's always been this long-standing kind of analysis of why are people concerned about crime? Crime is a visceral kind of thing that we're afraid of. But the question is, how bad is it? And it depends on who you're asking. Crime has even recently appeared to be on the rise, but it isn't. A lot of crime has still dropped precipitously compared to the 90s and late 80s, but you wouldn't know that because we're inundated with media and TV programming and stories on social media that basically say that we're experiencing an epidemic of crime. Um, some violent crime does go up periodically, but then usually drops back down. But if we're thinking about crime and its prevalence, we have a tendency to judge that based on what we're experiencing from other sources, namely television, uh, social media programming, things of that nature. So even though crime has dropped from decades in the past, we still think, and if you were to survey classes or people in general, they'll say, oh, no, crime is on the rise. They did one study where they actually um, surveyed some intro criminal justice students to estimate what the murder rate of the U.S. was per year. And these students, on average, basically claimed that there were about 215,000 murders a year. And the reality is that it hovers, in a bad year, around 18,000, and on a good year, around 15 or 16,000 per year. But here you have students who are criminology students, probably taking their first crime-related course, are estimating that the amount of murders are over 200,000 a year, which is a ridiculously high number. Yeah. But we can't kind of doubt that given what they may have watched, what they are hearing about. Um, and some of that is what they refer to as an availability heuristic. What we're hearing mostly about, we then assume that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And if we're fed a diet of 
you know, constant TV programming where people are dying or crime-related uh, events, then we're going to turn around and say, you're right, this is a mean world we live in. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, I mean, there are some mean aspects to this world, there's no doubt, but I don't think it's that mean. Yeah. And that might be a rosy, weird, kind of um, naive approach to this. And I don't think it's naive. Some people will assume that. But I think it's a better approach to things to be able to say in a sober way, um, is it that bad? Mm-hmm. And that kind of kind of leads into this idea of a moral panic. And I think this is a big deal when we're talking about the sociology of fear. Why are we so concerned about things. There's nothing wrong with being concerned with them, but are we being concerned about the right things? And a moral panic is when uh, a sober assessment would indicate that a lot of people have become disproportionately fearful about a perceived threat. Now the question is, is what is that perceived threat? And how did I even learn that that's a perceived threat? And another way to look at this is it's a media amplified um, social reaction and actually a media amplified over exaggerated reaction to an otherwise relatively um, less threatening situation if a situation at all. Uh, it's when people blow things out of proportion. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with proportionality, but we have to be concerned about the right thing. Um, and we have to be careful of emotionally letting our, our sense of fear get away from us. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it turns in, like your media consumption, at least for me, feels like it's turned into a habit. Like I, you know, I turn on, um, I turn on the radio every morning and listen, listen to the news, and then I just end up kind of listening to it all day long, which is maybe not, not super healthy to do. Well, I mean, uh, that's, I mean, even online, they now refer to it as doom scrolling. Yes. You know, so yeah. I can, I, you know, I have to set an alarm when I'm doom scrolling. Otherwise, I'll be down some rabbit hole yeah. and into the weeds and there's no coming back. But I, I, I think it's good to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm being a good media consumer, especially of, say, news and, uh, you know, reputable news and international news is a good thing. It makes you a global you know, resident or participant. But then there's that kind of balancing act between being informed yeah. and then being obsessed. And so we, we, we run the risk of um, falling into the trap of local, overly emotional news stories that are intended to grab you by mm-hmm. the neck and then shake you really hard. Um, but r- remember, all of that stuff that you're consuming is never accidental. Yeah. If someone at that agency, a news director has made a rational choice, is that this is a juicy story, we'll run with that, that one's boring, and I'm going to scratch that off. Yeah. And it still comes from that classic idea that if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And so that, that think of it, if you get a bloody story to, um, you know, head up the evening news, you know, they know that they've ca- they can capture consumer eyeballs and make sure that they stay to watch the weather. Right. In my studies, as I was a digital communication major, and one of the things that always comes up, like in the ethics classes, is um, social media and how 
you know, social media is going to like ruin everything. And you know, that causes its own moral panic. And but really, it's it's just an evolution. It's how the world is changing and, and how we're dealing with it. Well, in, in that yeah. note, I mean, consider anything that changes and especially if we talk about technology, mm-hmm. brings about a concern from people who aren't used to using it or don't understand it. When the um, the railroads started to introduce passenger travel, mm-hmm. there were lots of media reports and journalistic pieces in the newspapers basically saying that if you drive, or rather if you ride on this new mechanical delivery system, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> and because I mean, and, and the yeah. reason they felt it was because the human bodies, they felt that the lungs could not um, exist if traveling 30 miles per hour. Yeah. And that moving at such great speeds of 30 miles an hour could also damage women's reproductive organs. Mm-hmm. And so anyone who is family... Um, you know, or is responsible to their family, won't allow women on these um, problematic uh, vehicles. And so, but the, because they're ruining their future. Mm-hmm. And, and we can chuckle at this, but think of the people who had never ridden on a train. Right. Um, so changes in technology bring about this fear. And that's that's for just trains. Think of the phonograph. Yeah. Um, Sousa honestly believed, the composer Sousa, that the amount of people listening to phonographs uh, would cause an atrophying of the human vocal cords. Mm-hmm. And so that we would no longer sing because we'd be listening to this infernal box. And and this kind of uh, translates into this kind of fear of something new. Mm-hmm. And think of, I mean, I still hear this every day, and it's not new, but um, the Internet. Mm-hmm. Everyone believes the Internet will make us dumber. Yeah. And honestly, I... I I don't have any evidence to the otherwise, but the <laughs> idea is think of the amount of stuff that's out there. But yeah. think of it, it is not making us dumber as much as it is opening up our possibilities of learning more. Mm-hmm. So if people have said, well, the Internet is destroying our youth and destroying our culture, I would say, yes, there are aspects of that is problematic and is in, in, you know, inducing a bit of fearfulness. But look what else you can do with it. And I think that is something that offsets the um, overwhelming fearfulness of changes in technology. Yeah, hopefully. Heads up, on our next episode, we'll be talking with Jesus Ruiz, Dean of our Lakeshore campus. Maybe you've seen the new student center construction happening on the lakefront. We'll talk all about it and what it means for the community. Have a question for Dean Ruiz? Send them over to pr.podcast at clcillinois.edu. Another more physical realm of this moral panic, I remember, and maybe this goes with the season two, is um, every Halloween we'd have to have our candy checked for like the razor blade and the, and the apple. Oh, um, and it, it seems like that has never gone away. Like that was a kid in the 80s and you know, that, that's something I had to do then. And now we have a newer razor blade in the apple that's kind of in the news. Do you want to talk about the, the candy fentanyl? Sure. I'll back up to explain the, the idea of the razor blade in the apple. It's something that I think we've all grown up with, with the idea that we go trick-or-treating, we come back, and uh, the media tells parents that you must check your children's candy for safety because people will be jamming things in there so that they can kill us. And so you have this, like, stranger idea, or the idea of strangers wanting to kill us. 
I don't know why that would be because they don't know us. But at the same time, there's often this myth and it has turned into a moral panic with the fact that our our candy is unsafe, our, our trick-or-treating is an unsafe event. And studies have found that, or at least research in the news, um, that that has never happened. You know, the, the razor blade to the apple is a myth in many ways that was used to explain our concerns about children's safety in the first place. Um, there have actually only been two, to my knowledge, um, documented deaths of children consuming tainted candy. Um, and both of those involved their own parents. In one, a, uh, a child had uh, allegedly died after consuming heroin-laced candy, and, but then police discovered that the family um, was sprinkling over the candy to, to hide the fact that the kid had somehow gotten into uncle's stash of heroin and honestly, unfortunately, uh, OD'd. And then another one where the, the parent had actually uh, poisoned the child through the candy for an insurance scam. That just turns into something that is so much more powerful and visceral for all of us, um, which again, has resurfaced every season about this idea of um, threats to our children around this time. And more recently, I think the, um, the news of the, the fentanyl and the multicolored fentanyl that is um, on the streets these days, allegedly, uh, as being a threat to children at Halloween. I guess the idea is because they, they look so colorful and they're pretty, that they would be enticing to children and somehow people would be putting those in our trick-or-treat bags, which, again, if you think of it, um, no dealer is going to give away their product at Halloween when they could be making a lot of money on it. So, But I think this, this, this trend, this fear of fentanyl, and, and don't get me wrong, fentanyl is something to be feared. Um, better yet, how it is used is what needs to be feared. Um, it just becomes another example of the uh, razor blade in the Apple mythology. These come up all the time, though. Like, there's there's tons of things that we're we're afraid of, and these myths that become moral panics. It just makes me wonder, like, do we, as as a culture as a whole, like, what is it about human beings that maybe like likes being afraid a little bit, or you know, do we do we find enjoyment in in being fearful? I think there is a titillating nature to to um, horror stories. I mean, look at the success of of horror franchise movies. Yeah. It really rakes it in. Um, but under those circumstances, I think we, we know that we're seeing a movie and there's that suspension of disbelief when we go for entertaining fear. Yeah. Um, but I think overall, I think the, the idea of being afraid is um, both exciting and at the same time gives us something to maybe distract us from other things that are even more frightening. Yeah. I, I'm... I'm I, I'm just thinking of like the idea of how we deal with things and people that we don't understand yeah. or that we don't like or that we perceive them to be a threat. And then we kind of come full circle back to this idea of moral panic. Yeah. There, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are many people and many things to be concerned about, but we should be really in tuned with why they are a threat, mm -hmm. not just because someone says so. It seems like we're obsessed with frightening things. Um, 
I, I think Halloween is like as big as Christmas these days. What is it about Halloween that makes us want to celebrate fear? I guess the, the idea, are we celebrating fear or are we just celebrating in a playfully fearful way? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if this holiday were truly about fear, I think we would have done away with it a long time ago because people would be like, no, this is offensively terrifying. Um, you know, I think it has become very fun even though there's this little bit of fearfulness because, you know, some scary movies come out, people get to dress up in frightening ways and visit people's homes, which if you think of it, I mean, that's kind of terrifying in and of itself, not even the costumes. The idea of going to strangers' homes might be part of this. But also there's a bit of playfulness involved, at least nowadays, um, in the current kind of commercial idea of of. Halloween. But I don't know if it's truly fearful. Um, And and it has become commercialized. Um, I I think the fear comes on every other day, as opposed to Halloween. So Halloween, we can talk about these kind of, or, or celebrate something supernatural, or something absurd, or something utterly unnatural. Um, And we know in many ways, like I had mentioned before, with this suspension of disbelief, that this is just a holiday and it's just people wearing masks, having fun. And yes, we can get scared and jump scare and then disappear back to our homes to eat delicious, delicious candy. Um, but then the very next day, you're back into this world that you're terrified of walking down the streets of your neighborhood because of those news stories that we saw about how threatening the world is how corrosive human relationships are, uh, and that has a, an impact on how we create this kind of mean world syndrome. Um, we, we start to uh, develop a worldview or a cultural view of a very dangerous place based on what we've seen in media accounts or friends' and relatives' accounts of what's going on, and that's terrifying. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's based in reality, but it's terrifying for everyone. So the holiday itself might actually be, even though it's about celebrating kind of fear, less fearful than our rest of our basic, not basic, but the rest of our usual lives. It's interesting, though, that we bring that, that moral panic into the holiday, though, mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. with the apples and the, the razor blades and the fentanyl and the candy, like, you know, even even something that's meant to kind of be fun we kind of bring in something to be afraid of oh. in it I, there's there's a place for moral panic yeah. everywhere yeah <laughs> so, yeah yeah we can have fun with a holiday and joke about it but then there's always kind of like oh what a cute outfit that my daughter has let's check the bag of candy to make sure some psycho hasn't stuck something yeah. in your but i've always, always thought at the same time do you know how much work it would take and how how much trouble it would be to stick a razor blade into an apple yes because how that would cut up your own fingers it's just not worth it yeah i've thought about this too when i was a kid like the first time i heard about it i was like that doesn't even really make that much sense right and who eats the apples right hey if i got an apple (laughs) i would never go back to that house again that's the last thing i do what a reese's peanut butter cup or a stupid apple i'd be kind of like no i'm sorry hands down you try put as many razor blades into that apple as you want i'm still not gonna eat it 
So <laughs> I, I think that that's also part of how we have kind of come to terms with some of these fears. Yeah. So how do we avoid moral panic? How do we like live our lives without being so afraid all the time of the wrong things? Maybe right. Uh, I mean, that's a great question. It's it is tough because we're inundated all the time with it. Um, we're exposed culturally to so many things that, you know, give us a bit of trepidation and unease and otherwise fear. And, but I think some of it comes from being conscious of that fear and maybe not falling for it as hard. Uh, yes, we do. We're exposed to so many things and things sound on the surface to be fearful and concerning. But like even w- when we're talking about something like media literacy, um, I, how do we solve media? Uh, how do we prevent being suckered by some forms of media? Um, we should be better students of media. We should pay more attention to the, some of the stories, being mindful of, say, clickbait online, which will always take you down a weird rabbit hole. <laughs> Entertaining, but weird. Um, and I think it's a good idea to, oh, to have doubt about what you're seeing, what you're hearing. And I think that goes as well when we talk about fear and moral panic. I think something like media literacy, something I would like to develop more, and that is an idea of doubt literacy, being more doubtful about what we're hearing. Um, you know, because think of it, a healthy skepticism doesn't really develop on its own. Sometimes, and that's why I think we fall down this trap of moral panics and fearfulness, that we aren't skeptical enough. And I think it would be healthy for us and maybe even safer for us if we are more critical about what we're hearing and developing a little little more doubt. There's nothing wrong with doubt. A healthy dose of doubt uh, is better than blind certainty in a lot of these situations. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to know everything. You can kind of always. Oh, as much as I know everything, (laughs) I still have to doubt that. No, but you're right. No, open yourself up to more research. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, feeling a, you know, like the (laughs) questioning how the razor blades got into the apple is a good start. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you for coming in today. This is a really interesting conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Um, I also hear that I want to come to your house for uh, Halloween. That you have like the best uh, decorations. Uh, (laughs) That that only builds more pressure on me. And I have, I, this weekend has been devoted to that. Normally I have uh, like a walking trail through with, and it's mostly just all atmospheric lighting and some commercial grade fog machines and um, some high watt speakers. So I'm sure my neighbors hate me, but still (laughs) it's really spooky. Thanks for coming in. Sure. Thanks so much. We're a little halfway through our first season. Have you been enjoying listening to CLC Connects? Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts so other people can find the show. You have a question? CLC has an expert for that. Send us your show ideas or questions to pr.podcasts at clcillinois.edu. CLC Connects is a production of the PR Marketing Department with music by faculty member and today's guest, Dave Asma. Subscribe to CLC Connects wherever you listen to podcasts today.